We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Okay, let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, please. Matthew chapter 20. And we'll be in verses 20 through 28, or some portion thereof this evening. I've titled the message, A Mom's Desire. A Mom's Desire. And we'll see about that just now. In uh, Matthew 20, verse 20, it says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him, Jesus. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one at your right hand and the other at the left in your kingdom. That's the mom's desire. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, We are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In chapter 18, we saw that the disciples asked Jesus who would be the greatest person in the kingdom of heaven. Remember that? And I said that was a bad question that they were asking. The Lord used the object lesson there of a little child to show who would enter the kingdom. Remember that? He took a little child into their midst and said, unless you become like this little child, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, so even to enter it, and those who are humble before God like a little child in humility, these ones will be the great ones in the kingdom. Now in chapter 20, the general idea comes up again, and it will actually arise yet again. I believe it's in chapter 23, uh, around verse 11, but he who is great, greatest among you shall be your servant. So at least three times in the Gospels, and you see it repeated in the other synoptics as well, so that you get a dose of this probably a half a dozen times as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, probably a good reason why it's in there in repeated form. What do you think? Um, and so the topic comes up again, but now the Lord uses a different method to teach the disciples. He does not use a child, 
but he uses another method, or another way of speaking about it in terms of serving others to show what greatness looks like. So in um, the gospel here, we have this mom coming, and uh, we see in Mark chapter 10, a parallel passage, you don't have to turn there, but it says there that James and John ask the question. Here it says that uh, their mother asked the question. They probably work together to ask the same question of the Lord twice, the disciples asking and then their mother asking as well. Now this presumably private request, however, became public to the other disciples and then also through Matthew and Mark's records to the entire world as we read it. Now it does say that she came kneeling down and asking something from him. So she at least came in a humble manner, um, kneeling down to ask Jesus her question. And the question was, obviously, from our reading, we see it was that she wanted her, her two sons to have a place of prominence in the kingdom, one at the right hand of the Lord, one at the left hand of the Lord. Sitting next to the Lord there would be a symbol that they are the next most powerful in the kingdom, right? They sit there, they don't have to do a whole lot, they just, you know, um, give orders from headquarters like uh, the Lord does and everybody follows their whim and wish. Just thinking about that for a second, you might think, well, wait a minute, how can they sit at his right hand and his left hand? Because in Psalm 110, the Bible says, Yahweh, the Lord, Adonai, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, right? So if you have the Lord, God, the Father, and then immediately at his right hand is the Son, how can you have somebody have space to to weasel in between the Father and the Son to be on the left hand of Jesus? Well, somebody could be on his right hand, I suppose, but... um, The text specifies in Psalm 110 that the right-hand seated position of the Lord is, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so it appears that the sitting until the enemies are made the footstool happens in the present age right now. Christ is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God on high. And he will return after he's done sitting there. He will return here to reign on the earth. And so I suppose in that condition, there will be space at his right hand and at his left hand for him to have somebody sit there. So don't get, you know, too confused about that, Um, you know, as if it's some kind of big contradiction or something. Now, the, t- the way the scripture is laid out, it seems to be that he's sitting there at the right hand of God now, and he's going to return to the earth and set up his throne in Jerusalem, and then there'll be plenty of space for him to have right hand and left hand men in the kingdom. That's correct. That's right. And that's what they ask, in fact. In the kingdom, let them sit at your right hand and at your left hand. So no problem. There, that's like not a contradiction or anything like that. It, it could happen. But Jesus answers her and says, you do not understand what you are asking. Now, when he says this, he's speaking to the three of them, James, John, and the mom. And in my notes, I didn't really focus on this, but can you just imagine with me for a moment what mom must be thinking when Jesus answers this way? Now, here's a mom who wants 
greatness for her children. Who of our moms doesn't want that for their kids, right? We all want them to be good, to be honoring to God, to be successful, to be healthy. But the Lord is going to say, you guys are going to be baptized with my baptism and you're going to be um, you know, drinking the cup that I am to drink. And what he's saying is, you are going to suffer. What do you think mom thinks now? <laughs> Maybe she shouldn't have gotten so you know, enthusiastic to ask this question. The Lord says, don't, you don't know what you ask. And the upcoming words will prove that uh, out without a doubt. In this kind of request... You better know what you're asking for, so that that is a you know part one of the failure of the mom. She's asking for this, but she doesn't realize what it takes to get there. You know, you might want to be the CEO, but what does it take to get there? You might want to start a business, but what does it take to get there? You might ask God, you know, I want this to be accomplished in my life. Well, what is it going to take to get there? You know, you want to be holy. I want to be holy. Um, you know, when, if you ask God that, be willing to take the answer. That might be a tough answer. A second failure on the part of, of the mom is that she shouldn't have asked the question in the first place. First, she, she failed because she didn't realize that asking it was going to lead to this kind of, you know, outcome that she didn't anticipate. And the second is she shouldn't have asked at all because it was not in agreement with what the Lord was modeling for them and what he was teaching them like their bad question in chapter 18, remember, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? It shows a lack of understanding of some basic stuff, as I call it, some basic ideas, what the Lord's doing. So anyway, back to the, the question. The Lord asked them if they would be able to drink the cup or be baptized with his baptism. This is figurative speech. What kind of baptism was Jesus going to be baptized with? Any biblical language for me on that idea? Well, the Lord said, or John the Baptist rather said, that he was going to, Jesus was going to baptize with two things, remember, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Holy Spirit, salvation, fire, judgment. Well, what kind of baptism was Jesus going to undergo? Essentially a baptism by fire because he was going to be judged. What kind of cup was he going to drink? A very bitter cup, kind of pictured by the wine mingled with gall at the crucifixion. A very bitter cup. He would drink to the dregs the wrath of God on sin. Of course, the the disciples would not ever be able to actually experience the fullness of that baptism or the depth of and bitterness of that full cup because they weren't suffering for the sins of others, right? They, you know, that it's a daunting level of, of difficulty, though, that did attend to those who were the closest disciples of the Lord. I thank God that we don't have the kind of persecution in this country that they experienced back then. You know, people being cruelly and unusually punished and burned at the stake and you know, stretched limb from limb and tortured and all of these sorts of awful things just because they believed in God and in Christ. They had a terrible martyrdom. Church history testifies of this, of many of the first disciples and then in later generations as well. And so 
if you are going to be in the right hand and the left hand of the Lord, meaning you are so prominently attached to Jesus, guess what's going to happen to you? If they persecuted him, they're going to persecute you as well. Not that we hope to kind of, how can I say, shirk away from the Lord as, you know, as far into the corners as we can to kind of be ignored. You know what I mean? We don't want that. But yet we don't want also to have to experience this kind of persecution. I understand that, that mentality, that idea, that, that hope that we have. But the question of Jesus also here, are you able to take this, expresses a truth latent underneath the question when he says, are you able to be baptized or to drink like I'm going to? If you want the place of prominence, you have to go through the place of suffering. And that's the truth. Much greatness is the result only of much suffering. The Lord in, let me count them, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven sections of Scripture talks about the suffering of Christ or the suffering of His people with the glory that would follow. On your way to heaven, you will suffer some in different ways. But the weight of that suffering will be counted as nothing in comparison with the weight of the glory that will be revealed. So if you boldly seek the glory of Christ, if you boldly seek to be, to be honored as one of Christ's believers in heaven, that likely will come with suffering as part of a package deal. Now James and John didn't really realize all of this to the fullness. They would learn, but they didn't yet now know, they answered here straightforwardly and overconfidently. You know, Peter gets the reputation of doing things like that. Even if everybody, you know, forsakes you, Lord, I will not. I'll die with you. Oh, yes, you will you. Well, James and John did something very similar here. The Lord says, are you going to be able to drink the cup I drink? We are able. Hmm. Are you able? Do you know what that means? They didn't even know what they were about to face. But hopefully, like the three young men in Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, remember what they said? God will deliver us, but if he doesn't decide to choose or choose to deliver us, we're not going to worship you, O king. And so hopefully, like them, James and John were trusting in God to deliver and keep them through whatever they would experience because they were serious. This is... this. At least you can give them this. They were zealous, weren't they? They might have been overzealous. They might have been overconfident. They, that was mixed with an inappropriate desire to be prominent and to be first place in the kingdom. But you have to at least give them a little hat tip that they want to do something for God. Yes? What about us? You know, well, we don't want the first place. We don't want any place. We just want fire insurance, not to go to hell or something. That's not what the true believer should be wanting to be like. We ought to want to do something for God, even if it does cost us something. Well, the Lord promised them that indeed they would suffer. He knew this in, their, in his omniscience. And in fact, he knew the same for Peter. Remember Peter in John 21, when the Lord talk to him about how he would stretch out his arms and another would uh, clothe him and he'd be led where he didn't want to be led to, 
talking about the kind of death that he would die. And not only did he know it, but he ordained it for Peter, and he ordained this for James and for John as well. Um, so there was a, a catch, uh, however, in this whole thing. There's kind of a, a, a monkey wrench in the works. After all of that said and done, the Lord Jesus says, but you know what? Even if, like, you drink the cup and you're baptized with my baptism and all that, I can't give you the right hand or the left hand throne. That's only the prerogative of my Father. Notice that in verse number 23 at the end. To sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. So the Lord Jesus has submitted himself to the will of the Father. Remember, not my will, but thine be done. And so he is serving God. He's in his humiliation, if you will, his humanity. And uh, he says, I can't give those places away. They're appointed by God for whoever will have them. Now, in uh, the Bible, places of honor by God are never taken by man. In Hebrews chapter 5, it says that even not even the priests uh, exalted themselves to be made priests. They were appointed by others to, to that role. And so the appropriate kind of honor that somebody would receive would be that honor which is bestowed upon them by another, not by, I want that right-hand seat or I want that left-hand seat. No, go to the lowest seat and then God will call you up from there to that seat if he pleases to do so. So just like the priests, we ought not to be taking, the, right, the good priests anyway, not to be taking that kind of honor to ourselves. Now personally, I suspect, uh, one second, um, I, I suspect that God will have uh, a rotation this is my speculation now, okay? I don't think for a thousand years there's going to be two people sitting on the right hand and the left hand nonstop for those thousand years. I suspect God will honor various people with being able to sit in those seats, and there will be plenty of time, a thousand years, for that rotation to be implemented. The Lord, I believe, may well wish to honor more than just two people with those places of prominence. And can you imagine what an honor it would be for Jesus himself to announce to you, you know, God the Father is inviting you to take the seat at my right hand or at my left hand. Can you imagine that, the place of prominence that that is? He invites, he bestows the honor. We don't beg it or take it or, or for ourselves. Now, what happened to the other disciples? Verse 24 says, And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself, and he made an explanation here. So what happened with the other disciples? Well, they became offended. The ten disciples heard. The first two wanted something for themselves, uh, and they were upset. Now, why were they upset? Why do you think they were upset? Well, let's suppose. You think it was because they wanted James and John to have pure motives and to be thinking godly thoughts about greatness? 
Did they already learn the lesson of chapter 18 and think, boy, James and John have not learned how to be like children to enter into the kingdom, and we need to help them to become more sanctified? No, I don't think so. I think the fact that they were greatly displeased indicates that their motives were not so pure. They didn't react like Jesus did. You don't see Jesus becoming indignant here. Jesus most certainly did not react with such indignation or anger at the two brothers as the ten other disciples did. They reacted in the flesh, I believe, probably because they jealously wanted what those two disciples had already asked for, right? And they were like, man, why didn't I think to ask that question? Why didn't I think to go for that? They were jealous of what the other disciples had asked for. That's why they were upset. Those guys are no better than we are. In fact, we deserve that. You know, we, we catch them a number of times in the Gospels, like arguing about who's going to be the greatest. You know, what, what are we in here? Second grade recess on the playground? So this caused a rift in the personal relationship of the ten disciples with the two brothers. And that's what sin does. And in this case, both groups were having a sinful mindset. You understand that? Both having a sinful, I want it, no, I want it, and they're against each other. Instead of, how can we best serve the Lord together? They needed to sprinkle a little grace into their relationships and recognize that all of them were sinners. There's never going to be a perfect, feel-good relationship between all disciples all the time in all places. We need to be able to deal with that without getting bent out of shape. And I encourage you, if you have some kind of strained relationship with some, you know, if you're like one of the two disciples or you're one of the ten disciples and you have some strain between you and another Christian or group, you've got to get that straightened out and get the motivations out of you that are driving you to have that kind of jealousy or that upsetness, that anger, that indignation, uh, that lack of forgiveness, that lack of reconciliation, whatever it might be, you have to take care of that. Sin causes these rifts in personal relationships. We have to recognize, like I said here, I'll say it again and maybe in different words slightly, there is no relationship, no church that has, that everything is perfect. And so God is going to test you as to whether you will we'll stick with him or whether you're going to get upset and take your marbles and go home because there's always going to be something in the church that is imperfect and of course you would like it to be like heaven but if you're thinking that it's going to be heaven you're being a little unrealistic okay well the lord deals with the offense now by teaching them something very important in verses 25 through 28 and um, I'm getting close to out of time here. Let me see if I can give a couple of points from this. The Lord reminds them of this truth first, that the world is concerned with the kinds of things you guys are concerned about. The world is that way. They're concerned with hierarchical authority structures. I think this is why you see the denominational churches the big denominations, the way they are. They want political machinery. They want power. They want all this influence, and, and it's ridiculous. That's not what God wants us to have. 
That's not, it's, it's one of the reasons why I'm highly in favor of independent local churches because we don't need the problems that come with all the denominational wranglings and all of that sort of thing. And, and plus, you know, the, 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 the drift because people who seek power in denominational structures are oftentimes unbelievers. Often because they're giving evidence of this kind of mindset. That's what the world is like. Energetic and ambitious people are climbing and clawing and scratching and competing and vying for top spot in their church, organization, and government, whatever it is. The Lord gives the disciples a prohibition. It will not be like that among you. Just that's that's the bottom line. That's how Christians are not going to operate. We are not going to be like that. Notice how he says it. Yet it shall not be so among you. Rather, whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant, and whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. So this is teaching what it will be like to be among the disciples of Christ. It's not like the world. It is like being a servant. It will be that the disciples will be jealous to serve, not jealous to exceed or jealous to, what's the word, uh, climb the ladder, be promoted or be in a place of, of authority and power and be a, a big straw boss and that sort of thing. Um, they will be jealous to serve even to the point of what we call slavery in, to, their, to their fellows. Uh, that's what the Lord says. He says, let him be your slave. And by the way, it's not the pursuit of greatness that motivates this service in some kind of reverse psychology kind of way, like you're thinking, okay, I want the right hand or the left hand, so I'm going to do this stuff in order to earn that spot. That's not the mindset that we're talking about here. We're talking about a pure kind of mindset, um, not, a, not a simple delayed gratification kind of mindset. If it's not the way that Christ teaches here, but it looks like the world, then you have a bad diagnosis. Those who are still jockeying for position amongst themselves are giving evidence that they're not followers of Christ. Rather, they are followers of the ways of the world. If you are a friend of the world, you are an enemy of God. The model for the kind of service that Jesus is talking about in 26 and 27 is found in verse 28. The model is Christ himself. The disciples were to serve one another, how? Uh, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. In that place of prominence, you would have, you know, your meals handed to you. You'd have the cupbearer in the kingdom uh, you know, taking care of you and all of that. That was the kind of part and parcel of this idea of being in the right and the left hand of the Lord. But the Lord saying, I did not come to be served, but rather to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Now, there are many portions of Scripture that teach us to conduct ourselves in a manner like Jesus. Let me give you some of them. Receive one another just as Christ received us. Imitate Paul just as he imitates Christ. Forgive just as God, for Christ's sake, forgave us. 
Be subject to one another, wives to the husbands, just as the church is subject to Christ. How about husbands? Love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Husbands are to cherish their wives as themselves just as Christ does for his church. We are to walk just as he walked, 1 John 2, 6. We are to purify ourselves just as Christ is pure. You see, he says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served. That's the measure of how we are to be in our service toward others. Finally, uh, we see in 1 John 3, practice righteousness just as he is righteous. Now, the Lord gave his life as a ransom for many. This is a clear verse on the doctrine of substitution. Are you with me? Substitution. Jesus Christ died in your place. He died for you. He rose again so you could have eternal life. He offered himself as a sacrifice to pay the ethical penalty for sin, which is what? The wages of sin is death. He paid that ethical penalty so that others would not have to suffer the same punishment. Okay, that's what it means that he gave his life a ransom for Many. Now, I don't want to get all off onto the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. We could do that, and we have done that in the past. But I want you to notice that just as important as that truth is, it's not the point here. It's not the point here. This serves to illustrate the Lord's point that greatness is found in service. Because here we have the highest person, worthy of the most honor, reducing himself to the lowest place. He is great because his service was greatest in the distance from high to low, from heaven to earth, and greatest in extent for all of humanity. Jesus did this from the highest place to the lowest, and he did it for, from one to all providing salvation, at least we could say potentially, for all human beings. This is why he is the pinnacle example of what it means for service to lead to greatness. If you want to be great, the greatest you can be is to be like Jesus. Yes, that's the greatest you can be. And so we commend that example to you tonight in him. Now, what does this message call to your attention in your life? In what way are you like James and John or their mother or the other disciples? Do you want greatness? Do you have that kind of mindset? You know, do you, do you want attention? Do you seek the limelight? Uh, or do you look at somebody else and say, I want his job? Or where I'm at in this life is not good enough for me. That's totally different than a how-can-I-help-you mindset. How-can-I-serve-you mindset. Is there an area in your life or a person in your life that calls forth the kind of service that the Lord is talking about? Is He calling you to greatness through greater service toward your wife, toward your husband, toward your family? toward other people in the world? 
Is there some area in which God is saying, you know, uh, hey, listen, you need to be serving. You need to have more of a mindset like Jesus. Do you live for self or do you live for others? Is there a way that you can serve the body of Christ better than what you do now? And if so, then I pray that you would do that and find what the Lord says true to be true, that greatness is in service. The greater the service, the greater the person who is doing the service in the eyes of God and that in his estimation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity to look at the word tonight, to briefly see what our Savior is teaching, what he's saying. Lord, help us to cement this truth in our minds and to not only have it in our minds, but to put feet to it, to put hands to it, to remember that how we respond in situations should be, how can I serve, not how can I get one up? How can I be better than? How can I win the argument? How can I whatever? How can I serve my brother or sister in a way that will be most beneficial, most edifying, most helpful? And Lord, please work this in us. Don't let us stray away from this path. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, to those of you online, thank you for participating tonight. Have a good night. And we invite you all here to stay around for a little bit of fellowship. All righty. Good night, all.